Um, Akarda, Vontarovinu, um, I'm delighted to welcome you to this third lunchtime lecture in our Sisters 2 series at the Academy Library, which celebrates sisterhood and specifically the lives and achievements of sisters who made their mark on Irish life. Before I welcome our speaker today, Professor Geraldine Meany, I would like to draw your attention to some housekeeping items. So just to let you know, if the fire alarm sounds, there are two exits from the meeting room. First is to your left, which is on, it's an exit onto Molesworth Lane. The second exit then is back through the library and the front hall to the front door. The gathering point is just outside the mansion house and academy staff will be on hand to guide and assist. Finally, can I just ask that you please turn off your mobile phones uh, for the duration of the event. I'd also like to remind you that the next lecture in our series will take place on the 19th of October. And that the final evening lecture and Sisters Book Launch will, will take place on the 10th of November. The Sisters Book, which was edited by Siobhan Fitzpatrick and Mary O'Dowd, is a beautifully produced volume of essays published by the Royal Irish Academy, which traces the public and private lives of nine sets of sisters, including artists, publishers, writers, educationalists and revolutionaries. The essays take readers on a journey through the centuries from the 1600s to the turbulent years of the independence struggle in 1900s Ireland, attempting to uncover the influence, support and rivalries of family and is on sale today at the special price of 20 euro. It is now my great pleasure to introduce Geraldine Meany, Professor of Cultural Theory in the School of English, Drama and Film at UCD. Geraldine's Current research interests are in gender, ethnic and national identities in literature and culture and the application of new digital methodologies to humanities research. Her current research projects include an exploration of Victorian anxieties around public health and migration in the British Library's 19th century corpus and a decade of centenaries project presenting the diaries of novelist and revolutionary Rosamond Jacob. She is the author of the book Gender Ireland and Cultural Change published in 2010 and a number of other articles and books on gender and culture. She co-authored Reading the Irish Woman, Cultural Encounter and Exchange with Bernadette Whelan, Whelan and Mary O'Dowd and was one of the major co-editors of the Field Day Anthology of Irish Writing, Women's Writing and Traditions, Volumes 4 and 5. Geraldine was Chairperson of the Irish Humanities Alliance from 2016 to 17 and Vice Chair from 2015 to 16. She was also previously Director of the UCD Humanities Institute, the Vice Principal for Research and Innovation in the College of Arts and Celtic Studies and Director of the Centres for the Study of, Cent of Gender, Cultural and Identities and Film Studies at UCD. And Geraldine's talk today is entitled Kate O'Brien and Her Sisters, Archives, Fictions and Families. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm absolutely delighted to take part in this series. Um, it's a unique series. I think it's one of the first attempts to look at Irish history and culture through the lens of sisters and sisterhood. Now, I have shamelessly borrowed a really good idea that Margaret Ward had last year, which was to take a famous sister and put her in the context of her less well-known 
uh, and in this case almost unknown uh, sisters, the ones that didn't make it onto the public stage. Um, and I think for Kate O'Brien, that has been a bit of an eye-opening experience for me. Um, and I have to start with, I say, special thanks. Uh, the archive down in the Glucksman Library in University of Limerick have just been so kind to me over the last summer uh, in terms of, of making it possible for me to dash down, dash back uh, and get to see things. But this is kind of work in progress and I'll talk to you a little bit about that. Uh, there are gaps in this archive, there are gaps in my knowledge of this archive, there's always gaps, but I think it's a kind of an interesting archive precisely because of what isn't there as well as what is. Now, um, sorry. O'Brien herself tends to be seen as a very singular, complicated woman. Um, and I want, in a way, to put this kind of multiplicity of identities that she has into focus through just one which is the family of origin of Kate O'Brien. And I'm conscious in doing so that this is someone who had uh, a history of making other families, other kind of groups around herself, uh, and who had many parallel lives, but we'll talk a little bit about that. She was both a high modernist in her philosophy of literature and an extremely popular writer. Um, anybody who has seen Brief Encounter uh, you might remember that that is the, the book which the heroine is going to get in the local library when she has the fateful encounter with Trevor Howard is actually the latest Kate O'Brien. So she was that mainstream and that well-known. Uh, her books were censored in Ireland. Uh, they were censored in, slightly more informally in Spain um, for a long time, though she wasn't formally uh, expelled from Spain, and there's been a lot of research on that, it still wouldn't have been a very good idea for her to go there because of her very public affiliation to the Republican cause. And Spain was her other homeland. So whilst I'm talking about her in terms of Limerick, I'd also actually like quite early today to make a reference to the late Basque scholar, Anson Legareta Mentaxa, who passed away earlier this year and who has a book which has just come out uh, with Everett Root Press, I think. Uh, which is about Kate O'Brien and sees her very much in that Spanish context. O'Brien is now very much part of the canon of Irish fiction. She wasn't always. Um, the first time I gave a lecture like this on Kate O'Brien, I was interrupted by an eminent and extremely cross elderly professor uh, in, in a university on this island who said, oh, stop, it's a novelette, when I spoke about Mary Lavelle. Um, so I, I kind of have a, a relationship with O'Brien's work over many years, which has been initially about taking up the cudgels for her literary reputation. And that kind of narrow-mindedness about a novelist who crossed over into the popular domain, I think is something which a lot of Kate O'Brien scholars uh, have had to grapple with over the decades. She is very much uh, an icon of queer Ireland. In fact, she was one of, apart from Oscar Wilde, she was one of the very first writers um, whose, whose work and whose exploration uh, of queer lives was celebrated in literary studies. Um, not by any means the first writer, but the first to be really celebrated. Um, she is very much feminist 
in her approach to the lives of women, the seriousness with which she takes those lives and their professional development. And she is, in her own peculiar and distinctive way, a Catholic writer. Maybe I should have a small C on that. One of the most, uh, one of the things that really annoyed her, it seems, in her writing about Irish Catholicism was that it was not more like the European mainstream of Catholicism, especially in its uh, attitude towards matters sexual. Um, so she's, as I say, complex, singular, outstanding. But, and I'm actually going to go back for a minute. Sorry. Yeah. Um, that's the range of her novels, which are completely unreadable from here, so maybe I should put the slides on SlideShare. Uh, but you get an idea of how, just how prolific an author she was. And, okay. And a very current writer. She's having very much a moment uh, with that new book uh, by Anne Sarah, and also with um, the staging as we speak, well, not as we speak, but tonight, uh, a month-long run of her play, her very first play, Distinguished Villa, in London, back on the London stage after nearly a century, uh, and doing very well, apparently, as well. So and these are new digital editions. Uh, I see a few people who are current or former teachers of university English, and they'll realise that this is absolutely essential for her to be teachable on university curriculums. Okay? So I think the fact that these new digital editions are coming out from Virago is really important for new generations of students, tomorrow's writers, uh, to actually have that familiarity and access to her work. And as I mentioned, she's also a playwright. Um, the play is on at the moment, and it is being published in a really lovely anthology, actually, which is coming out. I think it's being launched later this week uh, on women's plays from the 1930s in Ireland. Um, there's a, a range of other writings, um, and I'm really interested in a late phase, which is often seen as slightly tragic, where the novels are drying up. But her non-fiction is absolutely fascinating. Some of her late essays are really, really fascinating. Um, there's a sense in which she's addressing herself to a rapid increase in modernization around the end of the 50s and through the 1960s in her old age. There's a wonderful essay on noise pollution and how the boundary between sound and silence is being eroded, which is so contemporary and really interesting piece of work. And then, of course, there's her famous travel work, which is also uh, highly political, Farewell Spain. So, there's the great artist. Uh, but she's also one of ten children. Uh, a child that lost her mother at the age of five, and for whom the big sisters had a really important role, especially Nance, who was her eldest sister, and also provided a kind of home place. I think we're all very familiar with this. Uh, the family member who stays at home, who long after the parents are gone, and O'Brien's father died in 1916, so there was no parental home after that. Um, so Nance and her husband Stephen provided the home place in Limerick. Now, her relationship with them was complicated. Um, I think anybody who was at the launch of Molly, and I'm actually seeing several people who were, uh, and the opening exhibition uh, about Kate O'Brien's work, there was a wonderful 
dramatisation by her grandniece, Cathy Rose O'Brien, of the exchange of letters between Kate and Stephen, uh, where by the time she comes to write Mary Lavelle and her work is censored, Stephen has become a very conservative Catholic middle-class figure. He probably always was going to be that person, but he starts out as a kind of revolutionary during the War of Independence, uh, very straight-laced and very much an epitome of De Valera's Ireland. Uh, and Cathy Rose's piece kind of dramatised the dialogue between Kate and her hurt at being censored. She, she was uh, hurt by it. Um, Edna O'Brien makes the point that we joke now that it was a roll call of honour. Didn't feel like that at the time. And so there was real hurt there. And I think in the exchange of letters, you see that Kate is both hurt, but she's also fighting back, and she fights her corner very well. And yet there's also huge respect and huge affection, which I wasn't expecting. Okay? Now, O'Mara's, Stephen O'Mara's archive is now available, has been since 2019, uh, just as it became very difficult to get into archives, or just a few months before it became very difficult to get into archives. Um, and it's fascinating because you're seeing O'Brien from the other side. This is the archive of the family, of, of Stephen and Nancy's family. Um, and there's lots of stuff about his political world and his commercial world. But in the middle of it, there is this treasure trove of Kate O'Brien papers. So this one child amongst the ten becomes the great literary sensation. But she writes back and forth all her life to her sisters. Uh, May and Claire spend, May particularly spends a lot of time in England, so, and there's lots of visiting going on. But the relationship with Nance seems to be mediated from very early on, primarily through this exchange of letters. Um, and because of that, those letters are frank, and there's a kind of intimacy in them. Sometimes you feel somewhat uneasily, that you're eavesdropping on a conversation between sisters. Um, and it is both glorious when you work in the archive, but I'll talk a little bit about why sometimes it makes me a little bit uneasy as well. Sorry, I am going to move my notes over here. If you okay. And if that falls, I... Uh, start with what I thought was going to work. Okay. This is a very fractured archive. This archive of the networked relationship between Kate and her sisters. So we have um, the records in the Glucksman Library down in Limerick. Uh, we have a set of papers, very much literary papers, drafts of novels and so on, which are northeastern in the United States. There are other individual items in the National Library of Ireland. Uh, there's a nice cache of letters and correspondence uh, of, between her and Mary O'Malley in the Lyric Theatre in Belfast, which is in uh, NUIG. Um, there's a digital project for somebody to bring all of these together in the one place. And, mean, and you know, meanwhile, we're, we're kind of rambling around from one archive to another. But I'm really focusing on the Limerick material today. Writers' archives are traditionally studied to illuminate the work and the writing process. 
Um, there's often controversy about the extent to which access to information about a writer's life and private opinions should influence the way that their work is read. Um, there have been famous cases where families, Ted Hughes comes to mind, uh, have basically tried to stop critics um, and postgraduate students having access not just to his letters but also to Sylvia Plath, for example. Uh, so families impeding access to writers' archives, families looking for exorbitant fees for access, um, that has come up from time to time in relation to Joyce's papers and Joyce's work. Um, families with agendas, Joyce again, um, but a few others as well. And I think there is a, a sense in which sometimes the relationship between the writer um, and as public property and the writer as part of a family can be seen as automatically in conflict with each other. And I think there was a, a very strong element of that with O'Brien for a long time. Um, there's a famous rose at the Kate O'Brien weekend, for example, uh, between literary uh, scholars commenting on her uh, and, and people who knew her or knew her close relations personally. What tends to happen with that, or what, what has happily happened with that, is a generation later something very different is happening. She's part of the past that a younger generation of the family interacts with, hence the, the Cathy Rose O'Brien kind of dramatisation piece. So there can be conflict, conflict and who controls access uh, can really be an issue in relation to writers' archives. Um, Eugene O'Neill, Patrick Kavanagh, all of these, you know, it's not, this is not something which is exclusive to women's writing, for example. Um, but archives can illuminate connections between writers and other artists as well. In the case of O'Brien, that relationship with Mary O'Malley is, is really coming into focus and this idea that she had a connection with intellectual life in Belfast which would not have been one of the arenas that most scholars would associate her with uh, through publications in Threshold. She was involved in uh, the opening of the gallery up there at one stage, just, you know, just lending her presence and her name, but somebody who was facilitating regional cultural activities. So the archive then is a kind of repository of connections in many important ways. And that's how I'm going to look at this. Uh, traditionally, and there still is a very strong school in literary scholars, of literary scholars, who look at the archive as source work. They're looking at the sources of the, the novels, they're looking at the source for, um, of inspiration, for example. Um, but what I'm looking at today is much more about where the writer fits and beyond that, into what our, looking at an archive can tell us about the cultural and social past in Ireland, and particularly what we can find out by looking through the lens of sisters and the relationship between sisters. So that dislocation of Kate O'Brien's archive across Ireland, across the Atlantic, isn't untypical of 20th century writers. Um, and it, the archive of her relationship with her sisters, I would argue, makes us ask new and quite challenging questions about our understanding of Irish women's cultural and social past. This is probably the most quoted passage from Kate O'Brien's work. Uh, it is from Mary Lavelle and it's the moment where Mary becomes an adult, 
uh, has her moment of artistic epiphany. Uh, and I think in some ways, O'Brien in the 30s is quite influenced by Joyce and the notion of, of epiphany. Uh, she sees in the bullring death so strangely approached, so grotesquely given and taken, under the summer sky for the amusement of non-entities, death made into an elaborate play for money and cheers, and exacting in the course of the show a variety of cruelties and dangers. Here was madness, here was blunt brutality, here was money-making swagger, and all made into an eternal shape, a merciless beauty, by so brief a thing as attitude. And again, here was art in its least decent form, its least explainable or bearable, but art, unconcerned and lawless. Ava Walsh, who was a really important scholar in restoring the reputation of Kate O'Brien uh, in the 90s, uh, uses that phrase, art unconcerned and lawless, as a title for his book. Now, like many scholars of O'Brien, I have always assumed that that unconcerned and lawless attitude would put her irrevocably at odds with her family of origin back in Limerick and the kind of middle class and respectable life that they in many ways celebrated and they certainly aspired to hold on to. Uh, not without some difficulty, by the way, but let's uh, talk about that in the discussion, if you like. Um, here is the dissident intellectual, um, and here is one of her other networks and contexts, the Irish Woman Writers Club, where alongside experimental poet Blonet Salkeld, Maura Laverty, Winifred Letts, Rosamond Jacob, Dorothy McArdle, and the children's writer Patricia Lynch, a surprisingly radical woman, um, the writer of The Turf Cutter's do um, Donkey. Um, they had a social space which they shared, but they were also campaigners, and um, particularly against censorship. And they really supported each other through that kind of process where you were censored and you were trying to get an appeal together. They publicly campaigned against censorship. They also, by the photographs in the paper, occasionally did, did themselves a really good dinner and a good night out. So there is this sense that you get from it of conviviality, of women's conviviality and networking. Um, and the, the world that O'Brien is inhabiting there is a lot, very, very different to the world that her sister Nance inhabits in Limerick, uh, a world which is of the regions, but also her husband is mayor of Limerick, an associate of de Valera, it's, it's a very different Ireland. Okay? They have two aunts in Laurel Hill Convent down there, which you know, was, it was the epitome of local respectability and piety. You go visit the aunts in the convent parlour, and the presentation parlour that she writes about is, is the one where she as a child would be brought to visit her aunts. There is a sense in which we see two Ireland's looking back. Uh, we see that the constraint, the restraint, the terrible repression. And nothing I want to say today minimises in any sense how appalling that Ireland was for the women who did not have the kind of opportunities that Kate O'Brien had to go and reshape a different life for herself elsewhere. But I also want to look at the way in which that freedom did not come at the cost of an absolute break, and certainly not for everybody and what the nature of the connections might be. Okay. 
so this is the, the best realized or one of the best realized um, relationships between sisters I think in Irish fiction um, the relationship between Mary Rose and Agnes in the anteroom and these are two women who do not have O'Brien's own opportunities uh, later in life she will write I think about women artists uh, and women who have the freedom to move back and forth across Europe and train to be opera singers and have, I suppose, the kind of trajectory that she had herself. But in the anteroom, you have these two sisters who are in this incredibly claustrophobic context. Very, very comfortable. This is, as even Bowen pointed out, she wrote a preface to it. This is a, an Ireland, a 19th century Ireland we don't often think about. Comfortable middle-class ladies very fine dine, you know, dining and dresses imported from London and, and a whole world which is very comfortable but is nonetheless incredibly claustrophobic for that. And the centrality of the relationship between the sisters is tragic because their happiness is mutually exclusive. They've both fallen for the same man and one of them has already married him. Um, and there is a sense that the the closeness which they have is not enabling for them. There's an absolute loyalty there, but it is part of what oppresses them. They never actually get to help each other towards you know, breaking out of that world of confinement that they inhabit. But at the beginning of the novel, um, Agnes contemplates her sister coming home. And even though this is incredibly painful for her because she's coming home with Vincent, with whom Agnes is in love, as her husband. Nonetheless, the idea of Mary Rose uh, coming home, um, whatever it meant and whatever pain it might carry, was an unlooked-for radiance on the morning. Okay? So that prospect of her sister returning is a radiance on the morning. The relationship between Kate and her older three sisters, I think, must at times, especially her relationship with Nance, have had some of that intensity. Um, and, and you see it at times of stress and pressure. This is a, a letter that Kate sends to Nance in April 1924. Uh, she's made a disastrous mistake in deciding to, to marry Gustav Rayner. And both Nance and Stephen had advised her against that. Uh, and you certainly get the sense that they knew there were very good reasons why she should not marry uh, Gustav, which again surprises me slightly that they were that aware and they certainly were not keen for her to settle down and be respectable at the price of her being happy. Um, it's Gustav who has written to Nance and said they're in trouble and that Kate wants to leave him. Uh, and Kate is incredibly annoyed about that. So there's, an ex you know, there's, a, there's a preamble uh, and she says, I wouldn't have written and worried you if he hadn't already done it. Uh, the mess we are in, we have been in from the beginning. I suppose no one is especially to blame. But our sexual life is horrible. I cannot write. Indeed, I cannot speak of the things that are happening. Now, when I came across this in the archive, I was uneasy, because that is a very private letter between two sisters. And there is this thing of eavesdropping. I'm not a biographer, so I'm not used to doing this. This is not my, not my, my uh, professional history. 
The other thing that surprised me about it was how unlikely I found it for 1924. In some ways, I would have found this easier. I would have found it more expected uh, in 1894, in that period where um, a lot of the conventions are breaking down, where you have the period of the new woman, writers like George Egerton. Uh, not that I think or I thought that O'Brien was going to be in any way squeamish in talking about sex, but I didn't think she was going to talk about it with Nance. The other thing that was extraordinary to me about that letter is that Nance kept it, and that it is in there in the O'Mara papers, that they understand that this chronicle of the breakdown of a marriage is part of their shared family history and part of their archive. Right? Now, if Kate had not been a famous writer, I, it may not have been preserved in the family archive, but she was, and they honoured that, and they did actually preserve her papers. Um, initially, she's saying there is no question of divorce or scandal, but of course the divorce comes fairly quick. Don't imagine there is anything to be done. Um, I'm an older sister, and I, I think that is the most little sister thing in the correspondence, where Kate, uh, and she does actually sign herself as the little sister, is actually saying to Nance, I know what you're like. You're, you think you have to solve the problem, right? Uh, go away, let me sort it out myself. Okay, so and any sisters who recognize that particular dynamic between them. Uh, and it goes on for decades, right? Between the two of them like that. Uh, with Nance thinking she can come up with a solution and Kate going, I, I need to do my own thing, basically. Um, you were all too nice to say, I told you so. And anyhow, one has to buy one's own experience. Um, her kindness about Gustav here, um, and her even-handedness, um, is really quite extraordinary, because he's not like this at all. In his letters to Nance, he definitely blames Kate. Uh, and he says, does she know nothing of duty, that she has a duty to go back to her husband, right? But Kate is incredibly magnanimous about him. Um, and this thing of he's a poor boy, it's all miserable. Uh, I have again and again wanted to talk everything out with you and wasn't able to start. Anyhow, people must manage things like this alone. I feel better now, having written this much. So this relationship that they have in the early 1920s is one where Kate can tell Nance things that she can't discuss with anybody else. That she knows she's an adult woman, she knows she has to solve her own problems, um, though there's a, an exception to that. But nonetheless, that support that's there, even at a distance uh, from Nance, is hugely important in getting her over this. And it is a real crisis in her life. It's only a footnote now in the biographies, this very short-lived marriage to, to Gustav. Um, very, very quickly, that, oh, you can't really see the letter very well, uh, that moment of there's nothing to be done except possibly avoid a scandal, within two years, 1926, has turned into this great triumph. But crucial to that change around and to the triumph is the relationship again between Kate and her sisters. Um, on the night when her play is a great success in London, uh, it's been out in rep 
and she's so excited about the idea that it has finally made it back to the West End stage. Now, it's not as profitable and it's not a, as long a run as she's hoping for, which I think is something which recurs again and again uh, and is eventually one of the things that sends her out of the theatre and towards the novel. Uh, but in the first night, you know, just this, this kind of excitement and, and the joy uh, is, is huge and it comes across in the letters. She's obviously sitting down and typing a two-page letter, um, which I think is incredibly impressive before she goes to bed. So it's obviously the small hours of the following morning because the reviews have come in. May and Claire and all sorts of faithful supporters, the other two sisters, May and Claire, who are based in London at this stage. And we had great fun and hilarity. Altogether, it was a marvellous night. And I wish many times that you were with us. I wish you'd been there. You'd have loved all the fun. Thanks ever so much for your wire. She sent her the telegram congratulating her. So these are very, I suppose elevated lives, right? These are great triumphs and great despairs, but also there is that opportunity. It, is, it would have been open to Nancy, possibly it wouldn't because she's got small kids and so on, but it would have been open to her to go to London, and she does. Uh, and when she goes, she stays in a nice hotel. And so this, these are people who have considerable resources. But they are also, you know, there's also a very recognisable sense of solidarity between the sisters. Um, and a shared joy. And I think that's something we don't see enough looking back at that cultural and social history of Irish women, is those moments of shared joy uh, that were, that are part of the history just as much as the terrible despairs, the triumphs and the joys. Okay, um, May, who was obviously incredibly proud of, of Kate as well, uh, and didn't have the kind of financial resources, and I think had some health problems, but I, I'm not 100% clear on that. Uh, but May has been sitting up, and she won't do just cuttings of the reviews from the paper. She has to send the whole papers back over to Limerick because she thinks that Nance won't get the sense of how uh, you know, important it is that she's in these papers if all she gets to the scraps of papers. Um, so May has shown her the late London edition of The Times. Uh, May has is in journalistic circles um, quite I don't think it quite works out terribly well her journalistic career but she has a pal in the Daily News um, and again this thing where you know she's she gets on to her pal to make sure that there is a review right for Kate's play and she's sending the large bundle of papers and Kate then apologizes for being so giddy basically uh, in writing the letter and says you know this is very chaotic uh, and she sends it off one of the things, and thankfully she typed that one, because there are some which are sent, you know, from uh, theatre dressing rooms and some sent from, in lunch breaks, I suspect, in offices when she was working in the Sunlight Company, and the handwriting is just, it is sent to try us, basically, okay? So, from the 1920s, then, we have this sense of, of shared sorrows and joys between the sisters, and the, and the, the archive is... Um, remarkable really in opening up those moments, those private family moments uh, from a century ago, almost a century ago, uh, to us. But the connection back to her childhood relationships is something which runs right through in O'Brien into her later life and her later writings. Um, this is from that really interesting piece called Bells and Decibels. Uh, about noise and sound and silence. 
and she opens it with an anecdote about May. When we were kids long ago at home, my sister May used to play her violin in an amateur string orchestra, which Limerick was enterprising enough to run at the time. And she told us once of a certain chic and pretty matron, a lady of airs and graces. Uh, and I should apologise in advance, I cannot do a Limerick accent, and a Limerick accent with notions I really cannot do. Okay? Uh, so the Lady of Airs and Graces um, doesn't understand their tuning up uh, and throws her elegant hands to her ears and cries out in dainty anguish, Oh, what a hegeous noise. Right? Um, and the hegeous noise, you know, for O'Brien, she uses that as a metaphor through the essay. Uh, you know, and so there's comedy when she, before she gets to the series. It's a beautifully written piece. Um, but of course, this is... It's noise, but it's noise as a prelude to something. Uh, and the point that she's making about the late 1950s, as trucks are starting to roll through her little village in Kent, uh, is that you, you don't have that sense of expectation around sound because you never have complete silence. So the, it, it's basically he just noise that never becomes anything else. Um, so I think this sense that we get in the late essays um, of O'Brien as someone who is sort of out of sync with the changes that she's seeing happening in the late 50s and the early 60s sometimes sound very fussy. This is an, an ageing cross woman, basically, um, as many of us these days, but anyway. Um, at the same time, the insight into noise and what pollution and the trucks and the disruption of having roads go through small villages and small towns is incredibly contemporary and foreseen, you know, very foresightful. Uh, she also has another piece where she talks about plastic, that it's all very well, but where is it all going to end up? Right? So we're, we're thinking about that half a century later. Um, one of the things which I find really interesting in O'Brien is her insistence on the value of pleasure. In 1937, which was not a good year for an optimist, right? and she, she did try to be politically an optimist, she writes in Farewell Spain um, very movingly about the Spanish Civil War, about Irún, which is in the border regions between uh, Spain and France burning um, and in the middle of all that she writes in praise of personal pleasure that what continues to make us human is a book and a first-rate joke a prayer to God or the birth of a child an escape into solitude or a wild night out a fit of hard work an attack of romantic love or of marital peace a visit to the play a glass of good brandy or good beer or a trip abroad, away from it all, as we say. So these were things that, as fascism was becoming more and more of a threat, um, and as her beloved Spain was descending in, first into civil war and then the, the Francoists were winning, um, she feels that it is worthwhile to assert the value of those small human things. Now, it seems to me that what we find in her correspondence with her sisters is a life lived with a real sense of those small human pleasures. Uh, and we also find a trace, which is very hard to get, 
of that life where books, nights out, a good play, a bad joke, you know, are actually, that's the, the fabric of human existence. And that it's precisely that that has to be asserted against authoritarianism, whether that's in Franco Spain or indeed in the Irish Censorship of Publications Office, as was also a, a target of her wrath. The late diaries um, are glorious and confusing and intensely difficult to work with at times. Okay? Uh, I don't know, I, the, the blue Let's Diaries, when I saw this, when I was handed it in the, the Glucksman Library, I had a, a real flashback. I thought, God, was it my grandmother or my mother that used to have one of those? You know, the little blue, and, and that particular shade of blue that says uh, the early 1960s as well, that that colour um, is quite uh, characteristic of the time. And you can see from the page there, you can't read it. You need a magnifying glass to read some of it. And, and there's the first thing that it says there is, uh, all the following is wrong. This took place on different dates. At which point you start taking out a spreadsheet and trying to organize stuff, right? Um, and there's a lot in these diaries about house renovation and the difficulty of getting reliable plumbers and things that life don't change. Um, but also there's this familiar pattern uh, of the relationship between the established emigrant, as she is now in the south of England, and her family. The back and forth of the sisters, you know, the, the coming over, going to a concert, uh, arranging excursions for May when she comes to visit in Clare. This is a 1964 extract. I'm going to need my glasses back for this one. Uh, I, I wanted to give it to you like that because you just you can see the year. So there's loads of gaps, and that, that was one of the things I said I wanted to talk about with the gaps. Um, so she goes, she's forever going around on, on, on the train mostly, uh, occasionally being driven. So she goes to May to bring her back and then they go down to Brighton to stay in a hotel. Um, and then she brings her out to show her the cottage that she's renovating, which May likes very much. Canterbury. Um, they go to the pictures quite a bit. Right? Um, Mary is her partner and with Mary she goes to Tom Jones. Uh, fairly good. She's a, an acerbic film critic. May makes her go to see a James Bond film, and uh, it's the most boring thing she's ever seen. Um, and then, in the middle of all of this, she flies to Paris, or she speaks at a pen dinner on the novel as art, or goes into the BBC at 2.30. Right? So there's, there's the ordinary life and the artist's life are jumbled all together in these diaries as they are in most of our diaries, right? You, you know, we might have it on a phone now rather than in the, the beautifully bound blue. One of her opera singers in As Music in Splendour, um, Rose says, we have to do with life, that's why we sing. Singing is about life and we can't help having stomachs and senses. And that's idea of lives, the life of stomach and senses and great art and everything else is jumbled into those, those diaries. Um, uh, so I think there's a, a great sense of that chaotic, but also not miserable phase in her life. And I think this is something we have to be very careful of looking back at an artist or a writer's life, that the periods of high artistic productivity uh, and, uh, you know, attract all the attention, um, but they're not the whole story. 
And in this case, you can see from the kind of life she's living where these short essays towards the end of her life are coming from. And also, of course, there's an unpublished or an unfinished novel, uh, which is down in multiple versions in Limerick, um, Constancy, which goes back to the subject of Spain. Uh, she was finally able to go back to Spain at the end of the 1950s. Now, one of the things which I want to briefly address before I finish up, because time is moving on, uh, is the other dimension, the non-familial, the non-Irish, I suppose, in some ways, dimension of O'Brien's life, because a lot of her life as a gay woman was lived outside of Ireland, uh, or at least was lived outside of, of Ireland's um, surveillance of people's private lives. Um, Ava Walsh describes a transnational network, an extended circle of professional, university-educated and independent women, academics, painters and writers, um, and that's, it's been a really important piece of work to, to actually, that Ava has done and Tino Tool has, has developed uh, as those kind of transnational groups of women artists and writers and how they influenced and, and connected with each other. One of the things that is striking from the diaries is that she brought May along to meet many of her acquaintances and friends. And I wonder if, there, if May is somebody who is kind of moving back and forth, lives in kind of slightly more bohemian circumstances in London for a considerable period of time uh, and, and is able to move between the two worlds uh, in a way that perhaps Nance isn't. Unlike the trapped protagonists of The Anteroom, O'Brien's female migrants like Mary Lavelle and Claire and Rose in his music and splendour circumvent uh, what O'Toole calls this fixed heteronormative and patriarchal structure of the Irish family by constructing networks of their own alternative families or what might be described as queer kin. Now, when I was putting, finishing the, the first draft of this uh, paper, I came across this by a very, really good critic, young woman, um, very young woman, called Nisha Murphy, uh, called Queer Hauntings in the Feminist Archive about Kate O'Brien. Um, and I was really taken aback by it. Uh, one of the things that you learn over many years of teaching is how to be surprised by the younger generation uh, and learn from it. And, and I found this surprising, and I hope I've learned something from it. So I thought it'd be worth sharing. Uh, for this critic, and the younger generation of critics are much braver than we were. I think they, they talk about their personal and their affective and emotional relationship with art in a way I think that was trained out of my generation of critics. Uh, so, for Murphy, the re her relationship with O'Brien's work is one of finding a place for herself. And she talks about coming across O'Brien's work when she's a young student herself in Paris on a year out, you know, the, the Erasmus thing. Um, and suddenly thinking, oh, there is a way into my Irish background. She brought up in the UK, I think. But there is a way into the Irish tradition for me. There are people like me within this tradition. And Kate O'Brien then, to her in a way, is, is opening a door. Um, and the inclusion of Kate O'Brien, for example, through the exhibition and Molly and so on, in a way for that younger generation is, is trying to make her too respectable. It's just trying to incorporate her. And I thought you could easily read what I'm doing in terms of saying, well, it's not a definitive break from the family in Limerick. Nance and Stephen's money basically actually allowed Kate to go back after the divorce and t 
to get her place to live in London until she could get an agent and until she could get a job. They helped pay for the divorce as well, which I'm sure he was not telling people down the local sodality. Um, so I think there's a a danger that we say she she didn't make as much of a break and she wasn't as oppositional a character as she was. But I think it's really important not to have an either or. Um, that she is both the exasperated younger sister going along to see the James Bond film with, you know, her the, the sister over from Ireland and the great literary figure that we recognise. She's both the, the radical revolutionary um, and one still of those ten children from, from Limerick. Um, there's a legacy there in these archives not just the O'Brien and the O'Mara archives, but the archives that we are increasingly uh, getting access to and becoming more aware of, of women's lives in 20th century Ireland, of questions and questioning. Uh, and I think somewhere between these haunted figures uh, that Nisha Murphy um, identifies and identifies with, uh, and that a whole generation of, of scholars have made visible as part of our shared um, culture and shared inheritance. And the electronic catalogues from which piece together the Kate O'Brien archive across four different universities. And somewhere between, you know, the, the art uncontained and lawless and those like very personal domestic letters. You get, there is a space there that we are really, I think, in many ways, only starting to understand uh, between the extremes of what Irish culture and society was in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, extremes of, on the one hand, conformity, and on the other, and I will have to paraphrase Joyce, she did quite frequently, exile, silence, and cunning. So I think in that respect, the, the letters and the relationship between the sisters crystallise what Kate O'Brien's relationship was, was with Ireland. She couldn't live in it for any length of period of time, and she could never leave it definitively. Uh, she wrote about it with such insight, uh, but she wrote about other places as well. It isn't a fetish as it, as it is with Joyce. Um, it is a space that she explores, but it's one among many spaces. Thank you very much for coming, and I'll, I'll leave with... Oh, hold on, one thing I did want to say, and it's to draw your attention. Uh, it is indeed a very handsome book, and it's last year's series. As far as I know, this is, and I think I'm pretty definite about this, this is the first attempt to look at that Irish cultural and social history through the lens of sisters. Uh, and I think in that respect, it's, quite, it's, a, it's an interesting and... and uh, a really innovative initiative from the Royal Irish Academy. So the books are outside on your way out, just to remind you of that, from last year's lecture series. Well, Adam, thank you very much, Sarah Jean. Um, that was an absolutely fantastic and very interesting lecture. And I think 